The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, bipartisanship made a comeback, at least when it comes to monetary policy. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell faced two days of questions from lawmakers, and his testimony produced some unlikely bedfellows. White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow and House Freshman Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez both agreed the Phillips curve is dead. During both days on Capitol Hill, Chair Powell was pressed about the trade-off between low unemployment and stable prices. And he admitted that the theory hasn't always held true in recent years. The neutral interest rate is lower than we had thought. And I think we're learning that the natural rate of unemployment is lower than we thought. So monetary policy hasn't been as accommodative as we had thought. So I think we're learning all of those things. At the end of the day, there has to be a connection because <clears throat> low unemployment will drive wages up and ultimately wage, higher wages will, will drive inflation. But we haven't reached that point. And in any case, that connection between the two is, is quite small these days. We spoke about Powell's testimony and his comments on the Phillips curve with Jim Bianco, the president and founder of Bianco Research, the provider of data-driven insights into the global economy and financial markets. We started by asking Jim for his take on the Fed's next rate decision. Well, I think the case for cutting rates is very strong. In fact, I even think it's strong enough to be cutting for 50, and it's this. The funds rate at 2.375 is higher in yield than 99% of sovereign debt yields worldwide. It is one of the highest interest rates in the developed world right now. Interest rates are all about a relative gain. Every time I bring that up, people say, oh, 2.5% is not a restrictive rate. That's an absolute argument. On a relative basis, our rates are way too high. We're out of line. It is restrictive. That's why the yield curve is inverted. And we have to bring them down into the, the range of other rates. Yes, I'm arguing that there's an international perspective when it comes to uh, setting interest rates because everybody else's rate matters. We cannot stand out as an outlier. Otherwise, we do damage to our economy. Jim, there was one of the uh, better uh, arguments that we've heard from anyone about how a rate cut might be justified right now. Meanwhile, I was really uh, amused by one of your tweets earlier. You said, score one for the socialist, and you praised AOC's questioning of Powell yesterday, where uh, she got him to admit that there's problems with the Phillips curve, and, uh, you know, strange bedfellows. We heard Larry Kudlow saying similar things today. Let's take a listen to what the uh, White House economic advisor had to say. He said, you're right, the Phillips curve trade-off between growth and inflation doesn't exist anymore. That's news-breaking. She got it right. He confirmed that the Phillips curve is dead. The Fed is going to lower interest rates because 
We're growing rapidly without any inflation, and I look forward to uh, supply-side discussions with Madam AOC. I look forward to it. So, Jim, you, Kudlow, he wants to have a meeting now with AOC. Tell us in your view about why this moment was so significant and to get that out, that kind of statement out of the Fed chair. The Fed has had since 1977 a dual mandate of high employment and low inflation. They need a unifying theory to make this work. So when they move policy, they could say they're working on both ends of the mandate at the same time. That unifying theory is the Phillips curve, that there is a direct relationship between inflation and employment. Now, we all know in the marketplace that has not worked for a couple of decades right now. But the Fed stubbornly needs that because of their dual mandate. If they're ready to admit the truth and walk away from that theory and say, look, there's economic reasons that inflation go up and down and there's economic reasons that payrolls go up and down, but they're not the same reasons. Then they're going to run themselves into a bit of a problem because then how do you set policy? Because you have to pick one mandate over the other and they don't want to be in that game. He at least went as far to say that maybe that theory doesn't work. It's an, an acknowledgement of what is obvious. I'm happy he said it. And now we could get about the task of maybe changing their mandate or finding a new theory that they can operate under. Well, let's talk about that real quickly, because changing the mandate doesn't at least seem possible in this current political climate. So is there a way to tweak it to at least satisfy, I guess, the market reality? Is there some sort of inflation adjusted output gap variable that we can rely on that would sort of allow them to sort of meet that mandate without being completely a slave to the Phillips curve? See, that's the problem. I don't think there is because they're more tied to an inflation target. If the Phillips curve goes away, then Congress can scream at them, you don't care about employment. You're just focused on this one mandate inflation to the exclusion of employment. So why don't you abandon inflation targeting and why don't you start focusing on some kind of version of employment targeting, even though I don't think that would work, at least from an optic standpoint, that's the way that, the, that they would be pushing the Fed. And the Fed absolutely doesn't want to be pushed in that direction. This is why it's such a momentous thing for him to talk about the Phillips curve might not be working. Although, in, 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 honestly, he did kind of walk it back a little bit today, maybe opening the door that it still does work just at more extreme level. It was another week of bad news for Deutsche Bank. The German lender announced a shakeup of its equity division, which would cut as many as 20,000 jobs, more than a fifth of all employees. The layoffs are said to be across sales and trading jobs in Asia, New York, and London. Now, thousands are heading out the door to a bleak hiring scene with poor market conditions and in the middle of the industry's typical summertime hiring wall. To find out what these employees could expect in the job market, we spoke with Gene Brandhover, co-head and managing director of the global executive search firm DHR International's New York office. We started by asking if a lot of people have already reached out to her. A lot of freaked out people, and it's unfortunate, but that's what happens. At least we're there to help them. And so what, what exactly do you hear from people? I mean, when they're in this situation, I mean, this wasn't completely unexpected. A lot of these folks knew that something like this was coming. What, what are the type of comments that you get? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody's ever ready that it's going to happen to them, yeah. right? So, so you're really talking to people that are very scared, that um, are maybe very unrealistic as to what the journey ahead is going to be. So we're here, obviously, to advise them. But really what they're asking is, is it going to be easy to find the exact job that I had before? 
part, which of course it's not going to be. Um, what do I need to do to find a job? Mm -hmm. Do I have to relocate? Um, you know, many, many questions that they're fearful first. And but then on the flip side, you have some people that are extremely good, maybe better than the average person. They're pretty sure they're going to find something else. So you're really seeing two sides, people that are scared and people that are a little bit arrogant. And it's going to be difficult for all of them. I want to pick up on what Romaine said, which is this is not completely unexpected. We've seen the writing on the wall for a while now. If you had stayed at Deutsche Bank until the bitter end, does that count against you in any way? I mean, will you be seen perhaps unfairly as damaged goods? The answer is could very definitely be the case. And not only are you damaged goods, but why didn't you see it? Why didn't you do something to help yourself? You know, one of the things that a lot of employers look at is, does life take over you or do you take over life, right? So if you saw something happening and the, you know, you know internally it is really bad as far as the culture and people, how people are feeling and the whole, you know, employee loyal People should have seen it, and then they should have done something about it. Those that haven't are now with everybody. Mm. So you have 18,000 people that you're competing to get a job against in some ways versus if you had looked six months ago, a year ago, it would have been different. So is it going to affect people that stayed negatively, that they might be viewed at negatively? Yes. But even if they're viewed very positively, it's going to be difficult because there's so many other people. For the remaining business that's there and the business that's going to be transformed and potentially built out, there's still going to be hiring needs there. How does that sort of work for companies like this where they have publicly this mass layoffs right. that, and then they're trying to go out to people, to talent and say, come work for us. Right. I mean, how do you balance that? Well, it, you, you have to balance it because mm -hmm. they have decided to go back to their core business, to what their brand's known for, right? So corporate banking, private banking, asset management, they need to beef up their talent there to be the best because they weren't just focused there. Mm -hmm. So they didn't necessarily say to themselves, oh, do we have the best that's in the industry? Now they're going to be going to the top firms, the best players, to bring them in. How do you balance that on the street where people are talking so negatively about you, where an employee who's happy right now at Goldman or Merrill Lynch or wherever, why would I possibly go to you? There's two reasons. One, financially I might go to you. And the other is, can I really turn things around that's going to affect my career in a good way? So that you will be able to retain talent, but it's going to be difficult to attract them. And to retain talent, to attract talent, I guess another question is how much is Deutsche Bank willing to pay as well? Because for years, especially when it was building up its uh, investment bank and its global trading business, they were known on the street to be paying pretty handsomely. Right. Um, how much can they pay out right now in this kind of environment with the kinds of cost savings that Christian Saving has promised investors? in order to get that talent? The balance is going to be very difficult to keep because if you really are committed to bringing on the very best talent in the areas that they're going to need to bring them on, they have to pay them. They just have to. So somewhere else, all these cuts that they're doing, they're going to really say, this is why we're, we have to do those cuts. It frees up the pot. Correct. So that it's going to even it out. But if they don't pay these people, they are not going to at all attract the best. What do you think about just sort of the, the, the radical nature of this move? I mean, there are some people that are applauding it, saying this is exactly what, what the, the CEO needed to do. But then there are other people who are saying that, you know, maybe there are other sort of, I guess, quieter ways to sort of, you know, trickle this out. I mean, where do you stand on that? I, this is how I stand. You have to look at this person as a leader, right? Mm -hmm. He clearly made a decision that it has to be drastic. Mm -hmm. But think about it. It's been going down for a long, long, long time. And how are you going to 
make things better. You have to make huge changes. We've seen this in other companies, other industries where they've changed back to their core businesses. It's essential to do this, I think, for survival and then to take market share. We talk about 18,000 jobs. It's a massive number. It's hard to get your head around. And I mean, it's one of the most drastic rounds of job cuts ever. I think back to 26,000 employees who were left jobless when Lehman Brothers went under. Obviously, it's not quite the same thing because that was not expected, but how is it different? How, what kind of environment are these employees going into? How can Global Wall Street absorb 18,000 jobs? It's a huge amount of people. The, the basic difference is this firm isn't going out of business, right? The company is still exists. So for some people, it's going to be easier to uh, understand that you didn't have something to do with it. You know, it, very often people were blamed when a company goes under, right? Even if they were a mid-level person and they had nothing to do with it, it's like, what happened to you? Like Madoff, right? If people were even connected. It was like something's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. So I think this is different because people are going to want to help these people in some regard, right? It's not your fault. Uh, you know, you clearly are a good employee. You have a good track record. You have good references. So let's see if we can help you. The other difference is I do believe people are smarter about getting jobs. There's a lot more access to LinkedIn and ways to get a job that there weren't back then, right? So it's people are much smarter about talking to their friends, talking to uh, senior executives, going to heads of businesses mm -hmm. and seeing if there are openings. People aren't afraid to ask. And years ago they were. And so people really feel that they can do something for themselves. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And it's a new era at Canopy Growth. CEO Bruce Linton, who founded the Canadian cannabis company in an abandoned chocolate factory and turned it into the world's biggest pot firm, was fired by the firm's board last week. Shares of the company fell on the news as pressure is mounting on the industry to produce profits and returns for investors. Bruce joined us after the news broke and discussed both his own future and the future of the company that he built. We started by asking him if it was premature for companies with strong positions in the space to focus on making money versus growth. Yeah, 100%. You know, Canopy could have been substantially profitable three years ago and it would be irrelevant today. Um, I think that you're going to have to show certain countries, like if you're in Canada, uh, by the end of the first calendar quarter, you're going to have to show that you actually have a real business in that geography because it will actually have a bunch of retail for rec, it'll have a diversified product offering and we should start to see data read out on clinical trials. Um, but if people just want to profit, I don't know, buy a bank or something because this is a sector which is never going to be smaller and it is uh, yet to become even well governed in more than one or two countries. Um, so I think those people calling out for that probably don't understand how we got 95 or 100 patents in the last year or two and where all of the uh, robust long-term value will be. So, Bruce, the narrative seems to be that there was some pressure from Constellation here after they made this investment. And I'm wondering, given what's happened now, do you still think it was smart for Canopy to have taken that investment from Constellation Brands? Yeah. Um, so um, 
the, there's always two ways to look at things, and, and Mark and I looked at it, uh, we think, both ways. Um, the first is to receive 5 billion Canadian or 4 billion US for 17% of a company that was then less than six years old. Uh, that should indicate some kind of substantial milestone of creating value. And it gave the company a war chest so that it could continue to execute. It did three or four major acquisitions subsequent to that, uh, continued to finish out uh, production assets in, in Canada and build out a bottling plant. Um, so I think it was a critical step and it was good for Canopy and good for Constellation. Um, but when you bring in that much money, it does change who sits around the board table. It changes the dynamic of uh, authority. and. Um, I contemplated it probably end up in today's interview um, as a potential outcome because you're changing how the world works. And I wouldn't say it's a bad thing for Canopy or a good thing for Canopy that I'm gone today. It's a bit uh, sad for me, mm. but um, I can't I can't imagine who's going to apply for that job. Everyone on the planet should want the job. Mm. Who should have the job? What is needed now, do you think? Well, clearly I'm not right all the time. <laughs> um, so I would say, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that one. Um, I, I would say that my view uh, is that the next evolution of this is more science driven than ever. And so we have about 60 clinical trials that are sort of set up and running or about to run. And that I think pharmaceutical is going to be attracted to this and science is going to give the the barriers, the moat, the intellectual property that will protect the opportunity and recreational. And so probably somebody who's more accustomed to uh, an aggressive tech environment, maybe you know, think about how Google grew through various, various techs, or to some extent a biotech. But I, I think this is more of a rapid growth technology comparable than anything else in the sector. Bruce, do the terms of your departure preclude you from launching a new cannabis startup? In Canada. So in Canada, you and, won't and be able to, to be but perhaps in another market, sorry? <clears throat> Yeah, Canada, and Canada, frankly, it's over. Like, anybody who's dumb enough to launch a new cannabis company in Canada, like, I don't know what they're doing. They, they should have been at it six years ago. Um, so Canada is done, and it's really going to be an allocation of market share to the competent execution against the new regs, and uh, you're going to end up with uh, a few winners and a whole bunch of people who wonder why they started. Um, but the rest of the world is simply forming up, and so I plan to be involved. This company on my shirt is one which I was uh, co-CEO of until about a year and a half ago, and uh, am now co-chairman of. And so I'm going to spend a bit of time helping Martello as a small public company. Uh, another company I've been helping create is called Ruckify. It's the concept of Uber for things. And so I'm going to put a bunch of effort into making those two really crank. Um, and then uh, probably do stuff with cannabis because the only advantage I have in any sector is that I think I've been around cannabis public policy and how it can be applied and how it's being globalized earlier more actively than anyone else. And that pattern isn't really changing very quickly. And so I'd like to actually use that skill. And you think the skills that you had or that you were using uh, at Canopy, that's going to transfer over into, uh, I guess, your next endeavor here? Yeah, well, these, these software companies, um, Canopy is like the most boring software, boring pot company in the world, probably, because we, we get super excited about things like uh, we're on our fourth generation of our ERP system. Um, and our chain of custody mechanisms are outstanding. So it is really a technology company that produces cannabis ingredients and does research with them. So I really do like tech still, and that's why I like Ruckify Martello. But I think um, the globalization of cannabis is going to get into things like there may be some jurisdiction which becomes the uh, trusted intermediary, kind of like reinsurance. There's going to be there's going to be all kinds of uh, future economic platforms that haven't been thought through today because most people are right now trying to figure out how they make a gummy bear and get in a store. Um, that is yesterday's business. 
Bitcoin has been on a wild ride the last few weeks, but despite all the volatility, the currency is still up more than 200% since the start of the year as digital coins gain wider acceptance among investors. Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Investment Partners shared his prediction on Bloomberg. I think if we can get to the old high by the end of this year, uh, every Bitcoiner will be pretty happy. But once you take out 20,000, right, it opens up, you know, 40,000 next and, and, and much higher over time. When I think about Bitcoin, it's probably got about $160 billion market cap right now, $150 billion market cap. Gold's got an $8.5 trillion market cap. And so Bitcoin has a long way to go before it replaces gold. We spoke all about it with Jeremy Allaire, founder and CEO of Circle, a crypto finance company. We started by asking how Facebook's plans for its cryptocurrency, Libra, would impact the space. Yeah, I mean, I think the announcement of uh, Libra and the Libra Association, as I said, we, we view it as a very massive inflection point, and I think it has an impact uh, across the board. Um, you know, first, just general awareness all around the world around cryptocurrency. It's going to bring this uh, into the limelight. It's going to help, uh, you know, individuals and businesses that are interested in this, um, you know, obviously have dramatically more visibility. And ultimately, we think it's going to help ensure that, um, you know, billions of people ultimately are able to access the benefits of cryptocurrency within uh, the financial system. So we think it's huge in terms of awareness. Um, I, I think it also is important in terms of um, ultimately regulatory questions and you know, figuring out exactly how right. crypto finance companies more broadly are going to work uh, in, in this new realm. Well, Jeremy, what about the logistics of getting it done? I mean, do, when do you think we'll actually see this? And I'm also wondering, do you think that this would have been a better idea, logistically speaking, if it had come from someone other than Facebook? Well, I, I think um, you know, the, the first thing to realize is that, you know, blockchains, you know, public blockchains that are capable of supporting hundreds of millions to billions of users with kind of mainstream applications in finance, those are really just emerging. We're sort of, we went through the first generation of blockchains with Bitcoin. Uh, many would say sort of Ethereum and similar chains represent kind of the second generation of blockchains. And those today support tens of millions of users and growing. Um, but there's really been this effort all around the world by you know, computer scientists and designers and economists to design these sort of third generation blockchains, which ultimately can provide the features and scalability needed to kind of blanket the world with the benefits of crypto. And the, the, the project that Facebook is introducing with a number of other you know, companies is just is one take at that, but it's not the only take. Uh, uh, but I think the consortium model is absolutely the right model around any kind of new technical standards that we're trying to see uh, develop in crypto finance. Jeremy, you said, you've said a couple of times the benefits of crypto. One of the benefits of crypto that a lot of people would cite is decentralization, censorship-free transactions, being able to buy anything without any middleman saying you can't do that. Of course, you, Circle has its own stable coin. It's fiat-backed. It's regulated. Facebook's is going to be fiat-backed and regulated. What is the um, benefit of a crypto that doesn't really offer that uh, censorship-free transactions because it has to go through on some level or interface with the existing financial system? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we look at all of this kind of on a spectrum. Um, our view is that um, you are going to have mass adoption of uh, non-sovereign kind of store of value digital assets. I think Bitcoin is sort of the preeminent asset there. And the need and desire for those kinds of assets is going to grow, not diminish. 
you're also going to see growth in these stablecoin type assets that um, are, you know very likely will have you know regulatory frameworks around them. But um, there's there's but there is a really key difference between stablecoins that run on kind of closed loop permission schemes, which is how Libra is being proposed today, at least in its initial incarnation, versus stablecoins that can run on the public internet. And that's really the model that Coinbase and Circle have developed together through the Center Consortium. That's how US dollar coin works today and is growing in its usage. And so there really are some variances in how people are going to be implementing these different types of currency models. Uh, so when you talk about the regulation, though, and particularly uh, creating national policy and potentially what I would assume some sort of integrated international policy, how do we actually get there in this environment, particularly when there's still a lot of concerns uh, about uh, security, about the concentration of ownership of bitcoins, and, of course, a lot of speculation about whether there's market manipulation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think these have all been um, topics that have been, you know, explored, and now I think there's even more attention on it. Um, the policy issues range from, you know, what are the standards for things like um, pr protecting, you know, f from the abuse by criminals or kind of financial crimes type risk, or, uh, you know, what are the risks, um, you know, associated with the theft of digital assets, uh, essentially the custody of these types of digital assets by intermediaries. We, we haven't yet really seen any rules around that um, in any broad-based sense. And then finally, and probably most importantly, is a lot of the really exciting uses of crypto are in, you know, innovations in how people raise capital and how people create kind of financial contracts um, using this. And so the kind of standardization of the financial instrument side of this. Um, so there's, there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done still. There's sort of been regulation by enforcement or kind of regulation, uh, you know, in, on an ad hoc basis. And what we've been advocating for, and I hope uh, in some ways the introduction of Libra brings this forward, is the, the development of national policy around digital assets. Um, mm. Our view is that you know crypto and blockchains represent sort of the fabric of the 21st century, uh, 21st century economy, and there's an opportunity to put in place policy that allows this to flourish on a massive scale in the same way that the internet flourished in the mid to late 90s, and policy was really vital to enabling that to happen. So far, policy has been mostly focused on the downside or the risks. Um, what we really need to be focused on is yes, we need to. Make risk, but also how do we open this up so that far, far more companies can benefit from it, and, uh, and, and hopefully we'll see more of that in the coming years. Jeremy, real quickly, uh, what is the dominant use case currently for your stable coin, the USD coin? So U.S. dollar coin, um, we introduced it in uh, Q4 of last year. Um, and so it is, a, as you noted, it's a dollar-backed uh, cryptocurrency. The primary use today is as a payment and settlement method within the digital asset markets. So the digital asset markets are these multi-billion dollar markets that exist all around the world where people are trading, investing uh, in digital assets. And so having a, a dollar uh, that can move at the speed of the internet, that can move with you know, incredible low cost and that can be where the transaction can be settled with a counterparty in minutes securely it's really powerful especially if you're trying to operate in that digital asset marketplace so that's been the primary use case we obviously believe that the uses of this are going to really proliferate ultimately to the point where you know payments and moving values just a free service on the internet and people are using these to access a very broad range of kind of financial products from their mobile phones all around the world and that's it for What You Missed This Week. 
If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.